BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the Tom Hartman Program, and I am Jeff Smith. Do we have Gerald Ford ready? My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Our Constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here, the people rule. Our long national nightmare is over. Except that it's not. And except that it wasn't. And our reliance, our collective national exhale as a country, our feeling that, oh good, now everything is over because Nixon has resigned. And then Nixon had been pardoned. And therefore, there was nothing else to be scared of. But let's think about what happened in 1973, 1974, and shortly thereafter. Bartlett became the editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal. Ended up turning that paper in a direction that ended up with him earning the distinction as the most influential editorial page editor of his time. Phyllis Schlafly blocked passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. Conservative Political Action Committee, you might have heard of that, CPAC. It has the conferences every year. It was founded. The Heritage Foundation was founded. National Right to Life, founded 1974. Focus on the Family, founded 1977. 1978 was Proposition 13 and the modern anti-tax, anti-public services movement. The end of the Nixon administration was not the end of the conservative movement. The end of the Nixon administration was not a dawn of greater transparency. It was not a dawn of addressing climate change. It was not a flourishing of democracy. It was not an emboldening of the people who've been fighting for, the, for civil rights and for voting rights. It was not a flourishing going forward of the middle class. In fact, starting in 1980 was when the burgeoning middle class, which had been growing since World War II, started to shrink. Our long national nightmare was not over then. It is not over now. It wouldn't have been over even if Bill Barr had issued a different report, even if what amounts to what Bill Sapphire called the cover-up general, if he had done something very differently. 
it wouldn't have been over. And it's not over now. So how do we react to that? Well, I've been saying personally that we shouldn't be putting all of our faith in existing institutions. We have to transform institutions. We have to build new institutions. We have to work at grassroots. We have to work at local level. We have to not neglect presidential politics or congressional politics. We have not neglect what's happening in large existing institutions and how those can be used in pro-democracy fashion. We've got to do those things. But we have to not think that the machine of power right now is moving in the direction of the people's interest. We can't just assume that. We have to move it. We have to build new gears and make sure that the gears of government are in fact working in the direction of the people's interest. Yesterday we used the word zugzwang. It is a chess term when you force your opponent into a move they don't want to make. And I used some examples of zugzwang. Here's another one. The move by the right wing to say government is bad, government is bad. Leading people to say, ah, well, therefore we must say government is good. Taxes are bad as well, therefore taxes are good. No. Government and taxes are necessary. It is our job to make them better rather than worse. It is our job to make government better rather than worse. Government's a tool. Public services are a tool. How do we make sure those tools are used to the benefit of people? rather than subjugation of people. And if we can avoid a simplistic, binary understanding of what's happening in the country, if we can think about first principle, if we can think about what is most important, how do we make people's lives a little bit better rather than a lot worse, then if we can stay focused. If we can recognize there's not a single president that will save us, there's not a single Congress that will save us, but that we are those we have been waiting for, that we have to build communities and build movements and build new ownership structures and build new institutions and build new organizations and build new media, that we have to support the good stuff that exists, we have to try to transform the mediocre or bad stuff that exists, we have to get rid of the really bad stuff that exists if we possibly can, we have to think of ourselves as agents, as people who have agency, as workers, as participants, not as viewers merely, not as listeners merely, not as audience merely, not as a target demographic merely. And we have to be vigilant. Stocktail paradox. Somebody said, oh, remind me what that is. Very quick version, Admiral John Stocktail, American hero, before he was vice presidential candidate to Ross Perot, before Saturday Night Live made fun of him and describe the people who made it out of the Hanoi Hilton, people who made it out of prison camps, and they were the people who were neither too optimistic nor too pessimistic, or more accurately, the people who didn't just assume everything was fine, but also the people who did not assume they were doomed. They were the people who were brutally honest about the critical facts facing the situation, and ultimately confident that they had to work to be successful eventually. We need to embrace that Stockdale paradox if we're going to get out of this prison camp. And we've got to celebrate the good stuff. What's good of things that you can do if we are agents, if we are workers, if we are participants, if we are not merely viewers, if we are not merely a target market, if we are human beings who are in this together, what can we do? What can you do? What are little bills that are happening in your legislature that could be big bills? What's something happening in Congress you want to praise? What's something you're doing in your community or somebody else is doing in your community that could actually do something 
that's a wish that could beget more wishes, that actually could do something to impact the power structure, to make it more pro-democracy, make it a little bit better rather than a lot worse. And that when this stuff that we don't trust happens and we want to go to sleep, I can understand it. That is how totalitarian regimes have been successful in the past. If we are going to make sure that we don't have an arc of history that bends towards a totalitarian regime, regardless of our politics in terms of many issues, including our religion, we have to make sure we don't go to sleep, that we aren't dreamers. So what's the good news? What's good out there? Mark from Valley, Washington, you're on the air, sir, and on Free Speech TV. Good morning, Jefferson. I called before you set your premise, so my call's not going to exactly match. That's all right. Do your thing. Here's the thing. You were quoting Ford with our great national nightmare. I think it began after Watergate, didn't end. Because that's when the conservatives consolidated. Exactly. That's when the Koch brothers decided to pour all their money into the elections. And with the court appointments that have gone through, and the ones that are going to go through before we get this evil person out of office... I hate to say that I think our great national nightmare is only going to get worse before it ever gets better. So much of our faith, so much of our analysis, and by our I mean the sort of zeitgeist, the collective understanding, is thinking that we are in a world that we used to be in and even then misunderstanding that world. And I couldn't agree with you more on the Nixon point. That was the dawn, not the sunset. It was the beginning, not the end. And thank you for your call, Mark. Anything you want to shout out that you're looking forward to, that you're working on, or that somebody else is working on, you want to give a little light to? I've just been getting involved with the local Democratic Party because I don't see anything else. I'm not a hardcore Democrat, but I'm certainly not a Republican, and you really don't have much choice. Understand the political parties are vessels, right? The Democratic Party was a party that was strongly in favor of slavery before it became the party that was standing up for civil rights. The political parties in a first-past-the-post system are vessels. If we can put good people into those vessels, whichever vessels they are, we can make the world a little bit better and a lot worse. Mark, thank you so much. Have a good one. That is not to disregard the national nightmare. It, in fact, is so that we engage within it. So there are moments of joy and recognize that if either we go to sleep or merely cry, if the only thing we have is brutal honesty with the facts facing us, we might, in fact, avoid even that. That we also have to embrace our commitment to make things a little bit better. And we're taking your calls. Here is Greg. KBCS from Tum Tum, Washington. Hello, Greg. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for this. What I'm doing to help out our cause in, in global climate change and everything is I'm doing a few things. One is I've changed my bank over to a bank called Aspiration. Yep. And it's a green bank. They do not put any money into the fossil fuel industry. It's a very worthwhile. And then also I'm investing in hydrogen. And if anybody doesn't know about hydrogen and fuel cells, a, a real good website to go to is called Fuel Cells Works. And every day they come out with at least three or four, sometimes five or six articles of what different companies around the world and different countries, uh, Japan, South Korea, and whatnot, are doing in the way of funding hydrogen and if people don't know it, hydrogen is the fuel of the future. It's 100% green. You can make it with electrolysis. You can set up solar panels out in the middle of the yep. desert 
and have a hydrogen fuel station. Pence saying that how he wants to go to the moon in five years. We could put a hydrogen fueling station in every single city in America. Just so I appreciate it. And I you offered two. In fact, one of them was on my list in a general way. That is voting with our dollars. That is. And you said in two different ways. You're doing that in terms of your purchasing or well, what you purchased in terms of your banking choice, banking with an organization. Geez, I need to do that, too. Banking with an organization that is in more in alignment with your values. And the other is putting your investment dollars into something that comports with your values for uh, people on the show who have the ability to do that. That is another good one and appreciate it. Every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. That's Eric Hoffer's line. I don't entirely agree, but I do think that the origin and arguable degeneration of the right-wing movement, of the conservative movement, of the free market, or just, let's say, the market fundamentalist movement, is an interesting and important topic, and one that gets vastly too little attention. When you think about it, these folks have now risen to such prominence they control much of the country, control much of the world, and how many people can actually name the philosophical underpinnings, the leaders of right-wing history, and really understand and connect those dots. Whether one is an activist or a partisan or merely just a historian, this stuff is really important and really interesting. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. Want to bring on now our guest, Seth Kotler, professor of history going to talk to us about it, has been doing a bunch of research on the history of the conservative movement. Seth, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Should I call you Doctor or Seth, Mr. Uh, Cutler, the Honorable? How would you like to be referred? Uh, His Excellency would be great. No, All right. Uh, just Seth is fine. So, Seth, explain your area of research and how you got into this mess. So I'm trained as a historian of 18th and 19th century America. My first book was on uh, actually radicalism in the late 18th century. It was about Tom Paine and the Americans who loved him in the era of the French Revolution. Um, But then that got me interested in conservatism because the 1790s is also the birth of what we think of as modern conservatism with the writings of Edmund Burke writing against the French Revolution. And so... 
out of that, I, actually, I started getting interested in conservatism, and I'm teaching at a liberal arts college in Oregon with largely progressive students. And around the time of the Tea Party in 2010, I started to get kind of dismayed by the way my students understood what conservatism was, that they tended to think of it as a deficit, as ignorance. And even though I myself don't identify as a conservative, I was like, I thought, this isn't really very useful for you to just think of conservatism and equate it with ignorance. You should understand this political tradition before you reject it or or if you want to actually work against it in any meaningful way. So I started teaching a course on the history of American conservatism starting in 2010. So and I've been doing it every year, every other year since then. So needless to say, things have evolved a bit in terms of how historians think about uh, the history of conservatism since, you know, the second year of Barack Obama's presidency. And how do you think the understanding, the definition of conservatism has changed in the minds of most Americans? So uh, I think that, that's a that, yeah, that's a long story. No, I know we're not going to be able to do the whole course in the next few <laughs> right. minutes. But but please just talk very very fast and write so, your entire course on a couple grains of rice. <laughs> exactly. So uh, so basically, in 2016, when I was teaching the course, a lot of what we were reading, the way the students were responding to what we were reading, was well, gosh, what Donald Trump is saying, he doesn't sound like a conservative in any really meaningful way. Um, you know, he doesn't seem to embrace these things. He, he does, surely doesn't sound like Edmund Burke. Uh, he surely doesn't sound like a free market fundamentalist with all of his talk of tariffs and so on and so forth. Um, and many folks in the class, and, and we were reading, for example, the National Review, which put out uh, an entire edition devoted to the idea that Donald Trump is not a conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but then he won. Uh, and now when you look at the polls and people who identify themselves as conservative overwhelmingly support Donald Trump and admire Donald Trump. And there's so much and, to untangle. There's so much to untangle because part of what I, w- what I would say that when David Frum and others were saying this dude isn't a, isn't a conservative was part because mm-hmm. what he was saying about trade, what he was saying about Social Security, Medicare, what he was saying about campaign finance reform. And mm-hmm. he was just lying. Like he didn't do it with, with the exception <laughs> right. of trade, like the, the right. stuff that fell most squarely out of the conservative tradition. He just didn't right. do. He just said in order to try right. to get working class votes in Pennsylvania. Exactly. Yeah. And so so he's governed basically like a standard Republican tax cuts and deregulation. Um, so there really hasn't been anything discernible that he's actually done as a policymaker uh, that is, other than perhaps his like extreme saber rattling around immigration that you know, there was mixed feelings amongst Republicans in the 2000 and aughts about immigration reform and yeah. the long history of that. So so he, he's more extreme on the immigration issue than standard issue Republicans would have been in the 2000 aughts or early 2010s. But aside from that, yeah, I mean, he's basically governed in the way that one would expect Mitt Romney to govern or um, in terms of the actual policy, yeah. which is why... Ben Sass and Jeff Flake and Susan Collins, regardless of all of their statements of disappointment, if you look at their voting record, they vote 90, 95 percent with Donald Trump. Yep. So, so that that it's it's that discrepancy between his sort of authoritarian persona and the kind of cult of personality that he has very consciously cultivated, and the extreme attacks on the press 
the extreme attacks on the basic norms and values of law and order and political procedures that really make him distinct from what we would think of as like a John McCain or a Mitt Romney. But this is where he invokes to a historian like me, other uh, historical precedents like Father Coughlin from the 1930s, um, a demagogic uh, radio preacher Mm. who was a fascist and kind of sympathetic to the Nazis, but also a populist. Uh, Donald Trump also invokes Pat Buchanan. Uh, If you think about the 1992 speech that Pat Buchanan gave at the GOP convention, I remember at the time, I was like in my early 20s, And my favorite line about that was by Molly Ivins, the political journalist from Texas, who said, you know, apparently the speech was really, it was much better than the original German. Um, you know. I remember. I remember. And, and I've even heard it argued that the victory of Donald Trump over the younger Bush was like the, the, the youngest Bush uh, of that generation, at least, the, was a bit akin to Buchanan having beaten the elder Bush. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and so I think in the 90s, for many folks, they thought they saw Buchanan as a dinosaur, you know, that he was just this weird leftover from the past um, that kind of lived inside the Republican Party as this kind of dying vestigial thread. And it turns out that Pat Buchanan was actually the future of the party. Right? It took yeah. a while. Yeah, but, and, and but, it, it's but, fascinating. And let me ask this, because they're, they're about to cut us off. Okay. Uh, there is a debate that has raged. It hasn't raged enough, actually, but uh, it is out there. Whether Donald Trump is the, uh, a departure from the conservative tradition, or in fact, it's apotheosis, or in fact, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's at, at furthest away, it's Frankenstein's monster. How would you characterize it? Do you consider Trump the, uh, uh, an outgrowth of the conservative movement or in some important way a departure? Um, yes, I, I think he is an outgrowth of that movement. So that movement was always very complicated and fractured, right? Uh, so I think, I think whenever Trump conservatives say that they revile him and don't see him as one of their own, I think they're speaking in good faith when they say that. Uh, I also think that they were a bit naive and not seeing yeah. the Trumpist elements within Seth their- Kotler, and we'll be right back. This is Tom Schramm, Jeff. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're back with Seth Kotler, who teaches a course on uh, the history of the conservative movement. Seth, let me ask this. What would surprise people the most, you think, or what would surprise the most people, at least a little bit, when it comes to the history and uh, genesis and evolution of the conservative movement? Or if that's too hard a question, what do you think is most important for people to know? If somebody said, listen, Doc, I'm not sticking around to take the course. I just wanted your best sentence. What would that be? What's the most important thing people need to know? So I think an important thing that people need to know is the way in which uh, theoretically kind of uh, gender and racialized neutral language of freedom has been used as a kind of dog whistle to justify various conservative positions. Let me make that more clear. So uh, there's a great book called White Flight uh, about Atlanta in the 1960s. Um, And part of his argument is that when a whole bunch of white people fled Atlanta 
to flee desegregating schools, uh, to flee integrating workplaces. They did so in the name of freedom. They were like, I want to live in a community with people like me, and I don't want to pay all these taxes. I want to live a life of freedom. None of that is about racism. But what was driving them out was black people moving into their neighborhoods, black people coming into their schools, black people swimming in their public pools. So white people in 1940s and 50s Atlanta loved public pools. They went to them all the time. Nobody had a private pool. And then in the 1960s, suddenly people discovered the joys of having a pool in your own backyard in the suburbs. And that is not unconnected to the history of the civil rights movement and the history of integration. So that when we hear people talk, use the kind of neutral language of freedom, opposition to taxation, opposition to public goods like public transportation, et cetera, um, behind that often is a coded kind of language of racial backlash. Oh, it's such an important point. Yeah, and I think people often don't see it. So in other words, the, the people who say that can say, I think, in good faith to themselves, like, "Oh, I'm I'm not racist, you know. I have a black friend at work." Have you um, Have you read Have you uh, a favorite book around here is Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains? Have you read it? I have, and in fact, she was a professor of mine in graduate school. <laughs> Very so, yeah. okay. All right, so you come by it honestly. And yeah. so, uh, the the two things that occur to me are one that right that that where that book shook me was connecting when I had sort of thought of the sort of the Buchanan thing and the Hayek thing as uh, as uneasy allies. Right, sort of mm-hmm. like the the racist tradition and the market fundamentalist tradition as well. It's just what you do to build a coalition that can win, and these aren't real buddies. That her case was no. This stuff was integrally intertwined in the ideological development of the United States of America, going back to John C. Calhoun. That rocked me. And then the other one right. is whether it's linked tradition or not. The other one is when I see if, if I look at someone who's a, an avowed angry libertarian on their Twitter feed. Too often times I look at their feed. And I'm like, oh, that's somebody who, if they said they have a black friend, I'm not sure they'd be telling the truth because I'm not sure you'd be able to get away with saying that stuff in my group of friends. And right. and, and so it, maybe that's history. Maybe it's a, a, any last thought or a favorite recommendation of something to read. Oh, uh, uh, White Flight by, by Kevin Cruz. Um, and I'd also say on the point that you just made, the distinction between conservative intellectuals and the conservative movement is really important, right? So we can read Hayek and von Mies and say that those people aren't writing out of a out of a place of racial backlash. Yep. But the movement that evolved around those ideas was very much about that. Yep. And that's what we write. I want to say thanks to Seth Kotler and say goodbye less rudely by giving a chance for a last thought. You recommended White Flight by, did you say by Cruz? Is that the Princeton guy? Kevin Cruz, yeah, he teaches at Princeton. Mm-hmm. He's doing, he, I, I want to talk to him also at some point. He's doing really good stuff. And him, he connects historical dots on, uh, on political movements and political ideology really well. The, the way he came to my attention was because he was willing to go after Dinesh D'Souza for just making stuff up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And another book I would recommend, and this is an older one, but it's, it's really good. It's called Suburban Warriors, um, The Origins of the New American Right by Lisa McGurr, who is a professor at Harvard. And this is a book about uh, Orange County 
about Southern California and the kind of complicated dynamics that explain the rise of Goldwater, Nixon, and Reagan out of that Southern California context. Um, and part of the irony that she develops is the way that this was a place built by federal funding, you know, by the military, by technology. And the irony is that this then became the hotbed of this kind of deeply anti-modern conservative tradition. Oh, that's interesting. So uh, like like Orange County, like where say again, geographically, what you're talking about? So, so it, the book focuses on Orange County. And yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, that's right. That, all that Orange County was the, in some respects, the birthplace of Reagan's conservatism. And that was all built by military contract money. Right. Right. And so and so she she, te- she teases that out, not just as a contradiction, but as a kind of really interesting paradox. Yeah. Um, around where does where does this sort of conservative political movement come from? And she also centers the role that women played in uh, the kind of growth of a of a grassroots conservative movement as well. And I, the person that's coming to mind is the is the woman who sold orange juice. Lita uh, Bryant. Yeah, that's the that's yeah. the that's the person that that comes to mind. Right, and that, I think she, her, for her that was kind of a Florida context, and that was very much in the mid to late 1970s and this backlash against the gay rights movement, mm-hmm. um, where she kind of partnered with the the emerging kind of moral majority, you know, this kind of uh, right-wing fundamentalist movement that was gathering steam in the 70s and into the 80s um, that was built a lot around these resentments about gay liberation. And, uh, and, it, and you said something really important that you say to your students, and it was part of the uh, origin of the course you've been teaching for, I think you said, 10 years, which is if we're going to try to uh, understand what's happening in the country, and if we're going to try to make things better, and even if your aim is to oppose what's happening in the country, you've got to understand, it is very helpful to understand the history, the origins, the power structure of the right-wing movement, and really appreciate your time. I wanted to amplify one other point, or have you amplify a point that you had made, again, which is this connection, this maybe subversion or uh, manipulation of the word freedom or of the idea of freedom, when in fact what it was uh, cloaking or was it was describing was freedom for white people to be separate from uh, from black people. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's a long history. There's a great book by Edmund Morgan called American Freedom, American Slavery that was written back in the 1970s that talks about the paradox that American freedom and American unfreedom have always been kind of inextricably bound up one with another. One of my favorite uh, kind of anecdotes from the revolutionary era is that Patrick Henry, the guy who said, you know, give me liberty or give me death, was the... Uh, around the time that he said, give me liberty or give me death, he also passed a resolution clamping down on the freedom of enslaved people in Virginia because the British were offering enslaved people their freedom if they would fight with the British against the Patriots. And so the guy who said, give me liberty or give me death said, oh, but by the way, don't give them liberty. Yeah. Liberty for me, people that look like me, but this concept of liberty, I mean something different by it. Right. And so, so, which is not, you know, not to come from a place of total cynicism that nobody ever needs it when they talk about liberty. Like, for example, those enslaved people, when they, when they fled George Washington's plantation, when they fled Thomas Jefferson's plantation, were seeking freedom yeah. in the way that was meaningful to them. And so freedom was an incredibly meaningful concept to enslaved people and to many people in that era. It's just that whenever people talk about freedom, it's always enmeshed in these complicated power dynamics. And this is, and this is I will say, 
this can get, and if you try to understand the history and the, the complexity of the right wing, it can be a complex thing and a lot of things to understand. But if I'm going to try to simplify it, I think, uh, I'm going to say Your Excellency, Doc, Dr. Kotler, uh, <laughs> the, but Seth, to me, if I were going to boil it down to a couple things, to me, there is a tension that the big fight is between freedom for human beings and freedom, I would call it power, of property. And even that thread even gets back to your Patrick Henry example, right? Like, I don't want, I don't want to be taxed by the British, but I still want to be able to hold slaves. Uh, it, goes, it, it draws Nancy McLean and, uh, and John C. Calhoun, who, who was advocating very specifically for the freedom to own human beings. It then connects to the, the modern sort of Hayek and Milton Friedman idea of when we say freedom, what we mean is unfettered capital capital concentrating as much as it wants to, unregulated, untaxed as much as it possibly can be, not right. really addressing freedom of human beings, freedom for women to, uh, to have an abortion if they need to, freedom for people to be able to have a decent place to live and a decent place to go to school, or freedom of speech for human beings, not just freedom of purchase speech. That this idea of freedom for human beings, rather than just unfettered capital, is one way. Am I oversimplifying, or how would you disagree or amplify? No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's a tension between the aspirations of democracy and the aspirations of um, property. Or capitalism and democracy have a complicated relationship with each other. Um, and this is where, when we go back to the New Deal, and this is why the New Deal is so important. Uh, I mean, basically, the entire modern conservative movement is built in opposition to the New Deal with a desire to dismantle the entire kind of liberal order and regulatory apparatus that was built up during the New Deal in order to oversee and regulate capitalism in the interests of people rather than in the interests of property. Um, and so this is why uh, there's a great book by a woman named Kim Phillips Fine called Invisible Hands, which is all about the, which is about the history of the businessman's war against the New Deal, which starts during the New Deal, but then carries forward through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Would you be willing to do something? We're going we're gonna to wrap, and I'm going to finally keep my promise of getting back to calls. I could nerd out on this stuff for hours, and I hope we will have a chance to talk again. I hugely appreciate your time. Would you do me a favor? And if you've got Twitter, tweet at me. I'm Jefferson D. Smith. Those, okay. those book links, those book suggestions, and I'll retweet them out. And if the good people the Tom Hartman Show want to, maybe they'll do likewise. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Seth Kotler, thank you so much. Professor, studying the history of the right wing so we can all understand better. We'll be right back. to the Tom Hartman Program. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash tom. That's expressvpn.com slash t-h-o-m for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash tom to learn more. Another piece of good news, something that people, something that you can do in your town. 
if you're not in the legislature, well, you can help somebody who runs, or you can think about running yourself, but you can also think about pushing policy and policy at the local level that could have systemic, massive, lasting change. You can start a bank. But instead of having that bank, one that only has for-profit purpose, you could start a bank that was for the benefit of the people in your community. And you could make sure, in fact, that the public started that bank. Joining us right now is Ellen Brown. She is the founder of the Public Banking Institute, the author of numerous books, including Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution. The website is publicbankinginstitute.org. Right now, I know San Jose just passed a resolution in favor of public banks. You'll probably know more about it than I do, and I want to hear about it. This is something that lots of towns, don't have to be the country, doesn't have to be a state that a town could do. Ellen Brown, thanks for being with us. So what's the quick argument in favor of a public bank or respond to it this way? Wait a minute. Doesn't the government mess stuff up? Why should the government get in the banking business? That is a typical response. But we have one state bank, the Bank of North Dakota, and it has proved the model. It is safe, effective, saves a lot of money for the government. It's never been caught in corruption as far as I know. And they operate at much lower cost than an ordinary bank. So they actually do much better than regular banks. Globally, there are close to 700 public banks with assets. I just saw this of $40 trillion. And that's a conservative estimate. That's not counting like central banks, which technically a central bank is also a public bank. It's owned by the government. But just the local public banks are huge globally, and they could fund a lot of things that people are in favor of that we haven't managed to get our private banks to fund. Usually the public bank movement isn't a consumer bank, right? It's not somewhere you take your ATM card and you go down to the Bank of North Dakota, the Bank of San Jose, the Bank of Poughkeepsie, if that exists, it may, it's probably a private bank, uh, and, and, <laughs> and take out something and deposit something there, right? The public bank is usually for funding what kind of projects or for depositing what kind of resource? Well, if we follow the Bank of North Dakota model, which is what we would recommend, in North Dakota, all of the state's funds are deposited in the bank, and then they're leveraged for public purposes. So what we would recommend is you start with infrastructure. Just start by refinancing the government's own debt at a lower rate, which we can easily show you can do. And you can save money, and it's risk-free because you know the client. You are the client. You are committed to make these whatever loans or expenditures, and you can just do them much more efficiently. But globally, there are banks that take individual deposits. The German model is quite prominent and popular. They have the Sparkassen banks, which are half the retail banking business in the country. And they, too, are low cost, very efficient for individuals, for local businesses. And since 2007, this might seem like a dumb question. We shouldn't have to do too much convincing of why highly wealth concentrated private banks aren't the only way to go and that there ought to be some other options for public organization to put in their money. But give a quick reasons. You gave the data. Well, actually, they, they save money. They're more efficient than private banks. How come? Give a plug for why the public bank makes sense. Okay. Well, the way a bank works, I mean, all governments have revolving funds where they lend money out typically to businesses, maybe to build an infrastructure. But what a bank does is that it could take that same amount of money, call it capital, and then it can lend, technically it can lend 10 or 12 times as much 
so it can make many more loans. So let's say you were making 3% loans, and suddenly you're making 30% on your money instead of 3%. You do need deposits to back the loans, but a public bank, such as the Bank of North Dakota, which has put all of its state's revenues in the bank, has plenty of liquidity to use for that purpose. And it doesn't do speculative things. It will do things that benefit the local community. Yep. So it obviously saves the local community money because you're using your own bank. You're leveraging your own funds for your own purposes. What are some places? What are you seeing? I mean, are you seeing some traction out there? I don't know. I, I, I had never even occurred to me until about the last eight years that this is something that people could be or should be working on. Any evidence out there of people working on this stuff and actually making some traction? Yes. Right now, I think there are 25 active bills across the country in cities and states across the country for publicly owned banks. The one that's probably gotten the farthest is in Washington state. They've allocated $480,000 for a business plan, which is supposed to be out in June, and 23 of the senators, state senators, are in their public bank caucus, which is pretty close to, they only need 26 for a majority. So they're hopeful of finally getting a bill passed. They've been working on it since 2010. It was Bob Hasegawa was the first to bring a state bank bill in recent memory. And he's, you know, gone through bill after bill, but they don't stop each time the bill gets, um, you know, tabled or whatever. Then they respond to what the objections were and hone something new. So this last time around, uh, one of the members of the caucus said, well, we keep getting the same objections, so let's just show how we're going to do it. You know, instead, they always say, how are you going to fund it? What sort of loans are you going to make? So decided to do a a business plan to sort of preempt some of those questions. Ellen Brown, I want to say thank you so much. You're with the the Public Banking Institute. Really appreciate your time. If people want to find out more, it's publicbankinginstitute.org. Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you. Please do listen to that one. Because this is a thing you can do at the state level. It's also a thing you do at the local level. A city can do this. Think about how much money. If you, it, it, and I understand a little town would have a harder time. But even one of the bigger towns, we get callers from Chicago. Chicago could totally do this. San Jose could totally do this. Portland can totally do this. I bet Montpelier could probably do it. That you, there are enough deposits just from the local community just from the payroll that have got to be used to pay the public workers, from the fees and taxes and water bills, et cetera, that come through, there's enough resource that just the interest off that is real money. And by the way, it doesn't cost any taxes. You're not reaching anybody's pocket. It's not a trade-off in that way. Other advantages, the money circulates in the local community. Private bank, all the money gets sucked up with a silent sucking sound all the way to the eastern seaboard. You can invest in micro-lending. You can invest in infrastructure, not just by privatizing infrastructure, but by having public resource that can help invest in infrastructure. A network of public banks done to make sure that fraud is avoided, done to make sure you treat it with a conservative, not right-wing, but conservative attitude, could transform the monetary system in this country. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Do listen to TomHartman.com for video and radio archives. Let's go to Ted. Hey, Ted, how you doing? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for taking my call. Jeff, I'd like to say thank you to you for uh, your program, and I'd like to give a shout-out to uh, my book, A Cure for Slavery. It's similar to the public bank, but I outline a nonprofit central bank where people can claim first dibs on the equity of their labor. There's a Facebook page, Public Nonprofit Central Bank, that everyone should check out. I post there regularly. Public Nonprofit Central Bank with a labor-based economy, trickle inflation, solves unemployment, poverty. Addressing banking in a more purpose-driven way is a big, big deal. Ted from Torrance, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Have a great day. Steve, you're on from Orlando, Florida. Go ahead. Hey, Jeff. Just talking first about your recent caller. I'd like to see a public bank open in every post office. There you go. Now, but my mine is a suggestion for someone else to do. It has to be a wealthy person or a foundation or, yeah. you know, I, what I want and what I don't see and what I've asked the Gates Foundation and others for with no response was instead of funding large organizations with millions of dollars per investment, they need to find and fund the many local and state grassroots organizations, you know, many are nonprofit, and, and they have very dedicated and mostly volunteer members, uh, you know, and organizers who spend all their time working on their particular social justice and civil liberties and human rights and environmental issues. And, you know, a million dollars, they could make one to two hundred, five to ten thousand dollar contributions that would be yep. an enormous help to these local groups, and none of them do it. Oh, Steve, it's such an important point. The big money ends up having relationships with the big development directors, the big fundraisers. Right. And the big right. development directors and the big fundraisers have relationships with the big organizations. When the wealthy donor is trying to divvy up, and I know I'm only amplifying what you already know, but when the wealthy donor is trying to figure out their giving plan, they ask, well, who's the person they've contracted to do that, or who's just the person whose advice they trust, they go to one of the well-connected development advisors. And those well-connected development advisors are well-connected to people who are also well-connected. And I, I think back even to the bus project days, and, we, and, yeah, and I don't want to cast aspersions at it because it's usually to the good. I can even think back to the early bus project days. Early bus project days, our first year budget was $100,000. For that, I think we did a million dollars worth of work. And the reason was, was because I was working, uh, I was supposed to be doing another job, but I was nearly full-time doing that. We had another person who was earning a little bit of a stipend. It was almost, we, had, we had some interns. We, had, I mean, and we were all essentially interns. It was enti- almost entirely volunteer-driven. We needed the money to fuel up the bus, feed the volunteers. The organization got stronger. The organization got better. But it never got more cost-efficient. The, the, the most valuable political contribution to this day I'm aware of were people who gave in that year that small early effort that was doing something real was the best political contribution that someone could give. Amen to you, Steve. There's so many organizations, I mean, even here in Orlando, but I'm sure they're in every community around the country that need funding, and a small amount of funding would be just enormous help to them. Yeah, I, I will say one thing, even just bringing it up here, I think is worthwhile. Hopefully it leaks out to the zeitgeist a little bit. But if people have friends who are in fact connected folks, and if you do have a friend or if you are yourself a major donor, there are a couple things very practically you can do. One is we could actually have a fund that's just a small group fund. Mackenzie River Gathering does that in our state where it only funds organizations under a certain budget. Not because they don't like bigger organizations, but they just think that's a place they can help a lot. That we could have more little foundations like that. Another way people can help, and this might sound crazy, but think about in your will, putting into it a foundation, even if it's modest, putting real money into instead of just getting your name put on something, 
invest in democracy and include smaller organizations as you do it. Steve, they're making us run away, but I appreciate your call from Orlando. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWheels and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. I had an interesting interchange with someone who was considering, who is considering, leaving a meaningful portion of their estate to purpose-driven media organizations. And in fact, the meeting that I had scheduled right after the show was with somebody who wanted to talk about that very subject. We're about to bring on Luke Vargas from Talk Media News, but just wanted to say that as we think about really trying to build the social justice infrastructure, if we really think about how we advocate for democracy, how do we actually solve problems? I think of the philanthropist who puts in a bunch of money so that they can name some portion of a hospital wing after them. I think, and then, you know, they'll give $100,000 to that or $5 million to that. And they'll go to the politician and they'll say, aha, here's $2,500 or here's $100. And I think about how can we actually start applying the resource towards democracy that is going to be required to build a good democracy. And for the people who do donate to nonprofit and purpose-driven organizations, thank you to you. And how do we start thinking about that at the scale of the problem? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Luke Vargas is with us, Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Appreciate you, Luke. How you doing? I'm doing good. Can I, just like I jumped in at the last news segment and selected some criteria to measure the difference between Tom's listeners and yes. the Limbaugh listeners. Yes. I want to just jump in because I was doing a, a, an interview today on this new European Union digital copyright law called Article 13, which has just been agreed to this week and is causing a lot of stir in the independent media sphere because it basically is going to raise the financial punishment for firms like YouTube if copyrighted content appears on their platforms at all. But one of the ways that it is likely that this is going to cause a problem for independent media is that big internet firms, which make money from hosting all sorts of content, are going to build very strict new algorithms and yeah. filtering systems to basically just immediately block from publication anything that has even a fair use amount of content in it, you know, and I've run into problems on SoundCloud uploading my newscast. If there's any even background music playing at a live venue while I'm doing an interview with someone that gets flagged by Universal Media Group and I can't put my newscast up. And I think I would just say that and I don't have a fix for this. I don't know who's offering to do this, but I've talked to some people who say, look, even when we as independent artists or independent media content producers can buy 
tools to scan platforms like YouTube to look for people and big companies that are pirating us. Yeah. When we then go to YouTube, the cards are really stacked against us. YouTube makes so much more money from the major news outlets and others that use copyrighted content than they do from going through all the trouble to listen to independent content creators. If someone out there in the legal world or in the tech world could create a way for independent creators to multiply their voices when it comes down to having to you know, crack down on people who are thieving their stuff and put pressure on platforms like YouTube, that would take, a, I think, a little bit of the nerves away from folks in independent media who are very nervous about this. So there is, yet again, demonstration by the current oligarchic systems to benefit purchased speech over free speech, that the large organizations will have a better ability to police because they'll have more funding for their police, and the platform itself will favor them over the smaller contributor of content. And say again what you're thinking might be in the realm of a solution to this. Well, yeah, to put another angle on the law itself, just to make sure I'm saying this clearly for listeners who I think should care a lot about this, um, because we do see this pattern, especially in internet regulation, where no one really seems to understand these issues and their consequences until it's already been passed. Uh, which we, I feel like kind of happened with net neutrality, and, yep. and now we're all... No, you're right. It's why we got to nerd active. out. It's why you're so very right. valuable, is because well, if we only pay attention <laughs> to the to the top... I'm not calling you a nerd. Maybe I am. Maybe that's a compliment. But if we only take care of the top-line issues, they can get away with any number of things on the stuff that's more complex. Keep going. Okay. So the recording industry, the film industry, big news media pitched this EU rule as sort of a David versus Goliath. They were the underdog and the big bad guys were Google and Facebook and YouTube and all these things. And it's not really the case. I mean, what they basically were sort of saying is we want more, you know, it's not fair that, you know, we created all this cool content, the Daily Show, all these other videos and music and stuff. And then, you know, Facebook's news feed is filled with all that stuff. But if you took away our content, Facebook wouldn't have such a valuation because you'd be a big empty billboard. And so they basically want more money from this. So they created a way to basically push YouTube to have to make big licensing, big fat deals with all the content providers in advance so that there's a bigger cut for the recording industry and the film industry. Now, they pitch this, though, by saying this helps independent creators and artists and stuff like that because now they'll have ways to go after YouTube. The problem is even in cases where so this one composer that I follow on Twitter was basically saying, look, I paid whatever it costs to get a scanning service to look for things. And I found a news agency in Kenya, a film production company or something that was using my composition for like a Netflix show underneath their entire news segment. And when I reported to YouTube, they said, oh, well, you know, you only had 10 days since when it went up to, to take it down. And I was sort of gutted saying, look, I'm playing along by the rules, but I don't have a giant legal division like Universal Media Group might have to be yeah. able to go to YouTube and demand that this gets fixed. So I, I guess I don't know what the solution is, but that is the space where you know, this probably can't be reversed. It favors big media outlets as opposed to independent media. But if there is some way to work within this law and try to create a system so that independent content providers are less overwhelmed in in trying to get justice for themselves and get Uh remuneration for their work, that would be a really useful thing to work on. And now we've used up our entire news segment. But it's still a really important thing. And 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 this was Article Article 13 of copyright law in the European Union rules? 
Yes, exactly right. It's brand new this week. Again, you know, big demonstrations, huge petitions, people trying to block it. But again, the outrage over it was never more than when it was already passed. So a big lesson learned there. Well, Luke Vargas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Appreciate it. And yeah, we do. I, I like it when we touch on the media stuff so much. I like it with the reference of the book, Who Will Tell the People? Ultimately, we got to work together to do that. We are now in the final hour of this spring break, of this substitute teacher, of this opportunity to keep our community together, hopefully grow it. Thank you to all the people who have been interacting, who have been calling in. Also, you can tweet us at Tom Hartman. You can tweet me at Jefferson D. Smith. We talked about the history of the right wing. Nate, cue it up. So, I want to say thank you. I'm going to start. Mike, you got to have the last word of my caller. You want to say we need to speak the truth. And the Valkyries are writing behind you. Go ahead, Mike. Thank you, uh, Jeff. You're doing a great job. I love Tom. love his guests. And, and I'm sick of the lies. World War One, the lies. Iraq wars, lies. Let's just concentrate on that. The, the Republican Party are liars, murderers, and they're liars. Appreciate your call. And I want to start by saying thank you. We have proposed the decathlon between the listeners of this program and the listeners of other programs. I am confident that our listeners could win that decathlon. I don't know if they would jump the furthest or run the fastest or stand the tallest, but I'm convinced that a larger percentage of them could locate a given country near where it actually exists on a globe. They could actually name some piece of policy they care about and how it's connected to some piece of fact that is in fact true. And I'm so grateful to this community that is working not only to elect a particular person or a particular set of people, but also working for democracy itself. Behind us are the Valkyries. I kind of wanted to go with Bach. Nate wanted Wagner. Nate won. But I do want to say this. There is a time right now for the pro-democracy movement. And if you are a member of the biggest political party in the country, the Democratic Party, there's an opportunity for that political party. And it offers a reflection of the story of America. A party trying to get better in a nation trying to get better. Starting out with advocating for working farmers during an agrarian age. Moving into the machine age, working to overcome control by corrupt political machines working the past 60 years to overcome its own entrenched racism. Become a par- becoming a party that is advocating for equality and opportunity for everybody. As imperfect as our country is, working to get better. The party that is dominating the country right now is offering almost an opposite story. Starting with Abraham Lincoln and emancipation, then supporting women's suffrage, then co-opted by corporate power in the McKinley era, And after Teddy Roosevelt's part of the progressive era, spending the 20th century shedding progressive vestiges, the Southern strategy, 
making way to attacks on social justice infrastructure and the middle class, to supercharging wealth disparities and tanking the economy in the 2000 aughts. And now to the current occupant of the office, praising those celebrating the Confederacy. This president didn't elect himself. If Ulysses S. Grant had seen leaders of his party celebrating the Confederacy, he would have driven him to drink. That is the extent of my Ulysses S. Grant material. And now there is a party that is poised to champion a new patriotism or to set aside party labels, a pro-democracy movement that can champion a new patriotism, the best parts of this deeply imperfect country. For most of my life, conservatives have covered themselves in the American flag and questioned the patriotism of progressives. For some of us in the 80s, there was some discomfort in trumpeting patriotism. But now, fighting for equality, opportunity, peace, this is fighting for America, for the United States. Oligarchy is un-American. The Gilded Age was un-American. Inequality is un-American. Undermining democracy, suppressing votes, rigging districts, fighting for secret money in elections, that is un-American. Working to dismantle the American-led international coalition that emerged after World War II in favor of a white right-wing network that is called nationalist, but is internationalist and united for racism. Standing up for the Confederacy and its symbols, working with foreign oligarchs and foreign agents to influence American elections. Those are the precise textbook embodiments of un-American. Advancing international cooperation on issues like climate change, nuclear proliferation is more important for thriving domestically. The pro-democracy movement, as imperfect as it is, is more than ever America's movement. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. And because of you, democracy is possible and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. It's been an honor to be with you. I'm Jeff. Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.